Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. We're between series at the moment, and so I'm selecting texts that I simply think will do the congregation good that I have wanted to preach or return to. Let's bow in prayer before reading this passage. Our Father, each of us here needs Jesus. We need the gospel. And we ask that our hearts might be open to hear the word of God read and proclaimed that we will set everything else aside. We ask that your Holy Spirit will arrest our attention. Help this preacher to be a sanctifying shepherd of this flock and help us all to be sanctified and grow in grace as we learn the word together. May our focus not be upon ourselves, but upon Christ the Lord. And may those also among us today who do not know Christ, may they hear of who he is And may they be enabled to put their trust in Jesus, who is the only Savior of sinners. And we ask that you will do that which alone you can do, since you know every heart exhaustively, that you will apply this text now and in the future to our lives in wondrous ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. This is the Word of God. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even wind and sea obey him. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been teaching parables all day long, and he is very weak and very weary. And Mark now turns to a series of four miracles. His purpose is to demonstrate Jesus' authority over all the powers that are hostile to God. Jesus is shown to be sovereign over wind and sea, over the demonic realm, over sickness, and even over death in these miracles that follow this passage. The passage before us is openly miraculous. Perhaps there's someone here and you say, miracles? Do you really expect me to believe that? The miraculous? Well, if God is personal, you would expect him if he wants to be known to reveal himself. The New Testament teaches that miracles are signs of the inbreaking of God's kingdom If Jesus is the Son of God come to earth and the kingdom of his saving rule has broken in through him, isn't this what you would expect, the miraculous? And if the miracles of the New Testament were not true, the New Testament would be a hopeless riddle. Yes, Jesus performed every miracle recorded in the Bible. The passage before us is openly miraculous. And you need that too, that kind of Savior, if you're going to be saved from your sins. 
Almost everyone looking at this passage notes that it was written from the perspective of an eyewitness. Uh, Taylor in his great commentary says that it is at once vivid and artless. Remember that Mark is almost certainly in large measure recording the preaching of Peter the Apostle. The details of the incident must go back to Peter's own recounting of the story. The verbs are vivid. There's a precise time note on the very day that Jesus was preaching the parables. On that day when evening had come, this event takes place. An unnecessary reference to other boats that were around, the location of Jesus' position in the boat, the harshness of the rebuke of the disciples of Jesus, their cry for help, their bewildered, awestruck response to Jesus' miracle. You are privileged to be very close to the event through Mark's record of Peter's preaching. Which is a wonderful thing as you read the New Testament, isn't it? And the Gospels in particular. And the first thing I want us to see as we come to this awe-inspiring text is that Jesus brings his disciples into a storm. And you heard me correctly. Jesus brings his disciples into a storm. Let's read again verses 35 through 37. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them into the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Evening came, and Jesus desires to cross to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd, the disciples took Jesus with them in the boat. And incidentally, we're told that there were other boats that were present. This, again, is an authentic reminiscence. We aren't told why Jesus wanted to go on the other side. We know that he was tired, he needed rest because he is God who became man and he was weary. For a new ministry opportunity, we know that because when we come to the next chapter, we see how he casts out the demons from the demoniac at Gerasene. This we can know, however, Jesus' steps are ordered of the Lord, and he is leading his disciples into a new opportunity to learn who he is and to learn how to trust him. And that has not changed. He still leads us, his people, in perplexing ways. Does God cause trouble? Does he bring us into trouble? Yes. Who else? Of course the scriptures teach that. Yes, certainly he brings his people into storms. Yes, he brings his people into trouble. Yes, Jesus is leading his disciples into a new opportunity to learn who he is. Because you see, beloved people of God, we don't learn about our Lord by avoiding difficulties. He leads us into them for this very purpose, that he might show us himself, and in the process, opening our hearts so that we may see our needs as well. You know, the Lake of Galilee is infamous for its sudden storms, and they would go out on these little boats, and open fishing vessel that, uh, that would hold just a, a handful of men. One of these vessels was excavated by archaeologists in Ganasser in 1986. There were a couple of young men that were walking along the shore, and there they saw an outline of a boat. And the archaeologists were called in, excavation proceeded quickly with very sophisticated techniques, And the boat was dated from Roman times somewhere between 100 B.C. and 70 A.D. So possibly a boat that would have been there when Jesus himself 
was on the Sea of Galilee. The excavation, of course, received worldwide attention because the only information that we had about these boats was from the New Testament, from Josephus, and from Roman mosaics. But now we have actually the outline of the boat. We know what the boat was like. It was large enough to carry 15 or more people, and they had very low sides that would be defenseless against the high waves. Easy perhaps to get fish in, but defenseless against the high waves on the Sea of Galilee. Now one night when I couldn't sleep, I was reading A.T. Robertson's Life and Letters of John Broadus. Not because it will put you to sleep, actually it has the opposite effect. (laughs) And in 1871 he was traveling in Palestine, and I came across this. I want you to hear it. We are safe, quiet, and happy, and delighted to see a storm gathering on the Sea of Galilee. Presently, I look across. All the southern part of the lake is now clouded with rain already heavy at the south end, but opposite I see the summits on the mountain range standing out very clear, indeed bright in the evening sun which shines over the clouds upon them. And oh, look, look at Hermon. He means Mount Hermon. Look, 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 oh look, friend, at Hermon. All words fail to tell how brilliant, how gloriously radiant. I gazed and gazed in a very agony of delight. And so I was thinking, as sometimes when the dying, when all around is growing dark, they turn their eyes in a new direction, and sudden, bright, transporting, rises the vision of another world, splendid with unearthly glories, blessed, rapturous, overwhelming... I could not see the wonderful mountain now for the tears that came, but the rain increased and the tent invited new and loud bursts of thunder. And as I look forth, the water of the lake lake is leaping high from something more than raindrops. On the tombstones here just before me, large hailstones are rebounding. The tent too hastily erected shakes and leaks, and I arrange our beds so as to protect them. Then sit down near the tent door to gaze." White caps now on the lake, and surf beating on the shore. Thunder very loud and abrupt, lightnings forked and many-colored. The northern part of the lake now obscure, the vision of Hermon gone. As the hail subsides, there passes between me and the shore a great flock of black goats and some sheep hurrying from the fields to shelter, but too late. The shepherd calls, the shepherd dogs bark loudly, urging the stragglers along. The storm rolls off north and northeast. Dr. R. has stayed out through it all. We rejoice much at having seen it, having got here just in time. A storm on the Sea of Galilee. What a marvelous description. Well, coming down then from Mount Hermon, these winds would have blown down, and here's this defenseless boat. All was quiet, and then suddenly the wind began to rage, and the boat, literally translated, was being filled. And this was not by accident, this was by the design of the God of all providence who wants his people to see Jesus for who he is. Which leads us to the second thing I want you to see the disciples' panic. The disciples panic. The boat was being filled with the water from the waves that are overwhelming this little boat. And imagine their alarm. Very obviously they could not bail out the water. They couldn't go back to shore. There's nothing they could do. Not a thing. 
They were in that awkward position in which we sometimes find ourselves so hard but so necessary to understanding Christ. That awkward position of realizing that we are powerless. That we have no strength whatsoever. That there is nothing we can do about the situation that we face. And they were taking on water and couldn't do a thing about it. Left to themselves, they would drown, and no wonder then they cried out to Jesus. Take time, get online or take a trip to Boston if you want, and go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and look at Rembrandt's The Storm on the Lake of Galilee. The tackle and the rigging are torn, the sail is tattered, the sky is dark, the waves master the tiny little boat that is about to capsize, and a number of the disciples gather with terror-stricken faces around a calm and serene Jesus who is asleep in the stern. That's the picture. For you see, it was such a storm that even these seasoned sailors, for remember that many of them were sailors, these seasoned sailors were afraid. I was hearing in my mind at this point what I often do when I read this passage, uh, Debussy's La Mer, in which you hear the great crashing of the waves. You know, our children are really missing out if they're not brought up on such music. They're missing great vistas for the imagination. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, a picture of his true humanity. He is God who has assumed human nature in order that he might be our Savior, And he's tired. He's been teaching all day. He is so tired that he's sleeping through the storm. What a contrast with the disciples who are panicking. Jesus is asleep in omnipotent tranquility. The the language is harsh. The language of the disciples is harsh, a rebuke to Jesus. Moffat translates it, Teacher, are we to drown for all you care? (laughs) And you know the language is different in the various... Gospels, teacher, master, captain, because all of the disciples are crying out. It's not one orchestrated cry. They're all crying out over the noise of the wind and the waves. They are crying out to Jesus and they're saying to him almost in rebuke, Master, don't you even care? And I know you've been there too, haven't you? Someone has pointed out that the rudeness of the remark is a pointer to the messianic veiledness. They don't see who he is. The Son of God is subject to the rudeness of men. But the question, if you think about it, was really cruel, wasn't it? He had shown his care for them, but they could not have known how cruel. This one whose care they doubt has come into the world to go to a cross and save them from their sins. He loves them. And yet, even after the cross, we will say to the Lord, when things are hard, Lord, don't you care? And when tempted to say, Lord, don't you care, I want to challenge all of you to know that you can know something these disciples didn't know at this time. They came to know it, and now we know it. And that is that God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that at any point you and I are tempted to ask the question, Lord, don't you care? That we can always say, I know he cares. 
I have seen his love. He has proven his love. He has proven it once for all with finality and the shedding of his own blood to redeem me from my awful sins. Yes, he cares. Yes, he loves. And your circumstances are no evidence that he does not love. He loves you in the midst of those circumstances. No matter what comes into your life, do not doubt his love that he has proven once for all in the cross. And he awoke, the text tells us. And then thirdly, I would like for you to see Jesus in sovereign control. (laughs) Absolute sovereign control. Verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The storm, sudden calm, no great winds, the waves that once were now overwhelming the little boat are like little puppy's dog, puppy dog's tails. Everything is calm as you would want it to be on the lake, a sudden calm. And Jesus simply told the wind to shut up and be muzzled. Now that's my translation of the text. But it really is what it says. Siopa tefimosa, be silent, be muzzled. Be muzzled. And the wind and the waves had no choice but to obey. The disciples have been chased by a great and howling dog of a storm, and Jesus says, shut up, and reaches out and muzzles its snout, and the dog of a storm goes whimpering away. He spoke to the sea, not, says Calvin, that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reached the elements which were devoid of feeling. And when he says, be silent, be muzzled, actually, You have a passive, you could translate, be silenced. All it took was his word. That's all it took, his voice. Which leads us to the fourth thing. The disciples, having been terrified by the storm, now hear Jesus stilling the wind and waves with his voice, And they ask the question that, of course, they should ask. Who is this? Who is this? Look at verses 40 to 41. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Now we can answer this from God's holy word. We can answer this. I want you to note three things in answer to the question, who is this? First of all, any Jew would know that there is only one who can still the wind and the waves, and that is the creator of the wind and the waves. Any Jew would have known that the only one who could still the wind and the waves is the creator and Lord of the universe. And maybe later they thought of verses like this that they had heard read over and over in the synagogue Psalm 65, praise is due to you, O God in Zion, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. 
Or perhaps Psalm 77, verse 16 and following, When the waves saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they, the deep trembled. Or Psalm 89, verse 9, You rule the raging sea, when its waves rise, you still them. Or maybe even the passage you read this morning with Christopher from Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away like their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Because this is the personal, the living God who is involved in our lives according to his own will. Lane in his commentary says he is the God who acts, not some pale abstraction. And that's true because this is Jehovah, the covenant God of his people. We can know that. Second thing we can know is that this is the Lord who is in control of the cosmos. Jesus uses here one of the very verbs that he used in chapter 1 for the casting out of demons. He is sovereign over all things. He rules all things and he rules over devils. He subdues all that opposes his sovereign command with his word of command. Miracle shows, think about this. The miracles of Jesus show something of what this world will be. The future breaks into time. Something of the new heavens and the new earth is showcased in the stilling of the storm. And so this is the Christ who rules over the cosmos. This is the one who has promised that he will roll up the sky as a scroll, that he will burn up the elements of this earth with fire, that the bride will come from heaven, the bride Jerusalem, adorned as as a bride for her husband. That city will be established in which righteousness dwells. He will wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. This is the Christ who rules over the cosmos who can actually bring about what the Word of God promises, the new heavens and the new earth. And miracles show something of what the world is going to be. The consummation of redemption is pointed at in the miracles of Jesus. And we know thirdly, let me put it this way. Have you ever stopped to think that every miracle of Jesus, every miracle is an overcoming of death? Since every miracle addresses the results of the fall of Adam, every miracle of Jesus tells us that he is life. And since every miracle is also a foreshadowing of the cosmos and its restoration at the end of time, and since the new creation is inaugurated in Jesus' resurrection, 
Every miracle of Jesus is an exercise of the resurrection power of God before the resurrection has taken place. Every miracle says he is our life and he has come to overcome death. The disciples were awed. Who is this that even wind and sea obey him, they ask? This is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity that became man to die on a cross and to rise from the dead and in rising inaugurate the new creation. This is the Lord of heaven and earth who rules and reigns over all men, all things, and the devil himself. And he is the Lord to be trusted by your heart and mine. Having calmed the storm, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Shouldn't they have learned by this time, having been with them, having learned something of the secret of the kingdom of God, Jesus himself is that secret revealed, shouldn't they have learned to rely on him? And we're just like the disciples, aren't we? And we're called to put our faith in him, and he can be trusted. And you are not at all allegorizing if you apply the text to the storms of your life. Now that's application, not interpretation. Interpretation says this is history, this took place, this was unique in redemptive history. It pushes Mark ahead in showing who Christ is. But in terms of application, we can take these very truths and apply them to our lives. The Gospel of Mark is written to persecuted Christians. Of course they were to apply this to the storm of persecution against the church. It's history, but it's the same Lord who rules in the storm of persecution as well. And so he teaches this lesson of faith. When can you not trust me, he's asking, and when can the church not do so? A statistic from a 2001 book, Reliable Source, puts the number of Christian martyrs in the 20th century at 45 million people. And the author estimates that since 1990, every year an average of 160,000 Christians have been killed in countries all around us. Does the God who stills the storm still rule and reign in the midst of this? Yes, he does. And very early in Christian art, the ship was a symbol of the Christian church, and rightly so. Storm-tossed, persecuted, yet still in the boat, safe in the power of the one who calms the storm. And believers, so are you. No matter what your circumstance may be, you may cry out as did the disciples, what are you doing? He may not calm the storm when or in the way that you would like. But the same Lord of heaven and earth that became man and calmed the wind and waves rules in your heart and in your life and in your circumstances too. And when the disciples began their trip across the lake with Jesus... Verse 36 tells us they took him just as he was. I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) I think it means they just, man, I'm not sure. They just took him like he was. He was tired, I guess. He was tired. He was worn out. They took him where he found himself that day. 
But now they learn who he is. Do you know who he is? This should bring greater awe in your life than the storm could ever bring. And here I think is something remarkable. We're told in the text that when the storm came, they were fearful. Who wouldn't be? After Jesus calms the storm, we are told they were terrified. And you think about it. Who wouldn't be? Because this is God in the boat. Folks, this is the second person of the Trinity who assumed human nature. Only God can still the wind and the waves. Only He can rule the sea. Only He is in control of the elements of the cosmos. And so the disciples were taught something of the majesty of Jesus. But I want you to think about this. They were terrified... That is to say, they were filled with awe and reverence because of what Jesus did when he stilled the wind and the waves. You know more than did they at that time, and you have a completed Bible. You know more than did the disciples. So, for example, if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 1, just to give one majestic example... We are told in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, of who Jesus is. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now I ask you, does that not fill you with awe? He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the redeemer. You know all of this about Jesus. So I ask another question. Shouldn't this fill our lives with trust in the majesty of Jesus? And have you lost some of this, Christian? When believers are filled with awe, what does it produce? When you are filled with awe, it produces worship, self forgetfulness, service to the King, a desire for others to see Christ too. A deep longing to glorify the Lord Jesus. Do you value his coming? Do you value his suffering? Do you value his resurrection? Do you value his glory? Have you lost some of the awe? And in so doing, have you lost your zeal for Christ? Because that's the key. Zeal comes from all. An unbeliever, unless this is the Jesus that you trust, you're lost. You need this Jesus 
God become man who went to a cross and shed his blood for sinners, rose from the dead. This awe-inspiring creator, redeemer, you need him. You need him. And we call you to faith in him. So don't focus on the storm. The storm is important, but don't focus there. There's something far more important in life than my problems and me. And when I see this, my problems really are put into perspective. What is more important than my problem and the storm in which I find myself? It's not a what. It's Jesus. He's more important. Let your problems, your troubles, the storm turn your attention to this great and grand question. Who is this? Who, whether he chooses to or not in my circumstance, is capable of removing the circumstance? And be appropriately awed. Who is this? Who is this? This is the incarnate God, ruler of all nature, son of God and son of man, the redeemer of sinners, the risen Lord, your Savior. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.